0: If you're there, it's probably because you're interested in Bayesian inference, right? But don't you feel lost sometimes when building a model? Or maybe you ask yourself why what you're trying to do is so damn hard, and you conclude that you are the problem, that you must be doing something wrong. Well, rest assured, as you'll hear from Michael Betancourt himself, it's hard for everybody. That's why over the years, Michael developed and tries to popularize what he calls a principled Bayesian workflow. In a nutshell, think about what could have generated your data, and always question default settings. With that workflow, you'll probably feel less alone when modeling, but expect to fail often. That's okay. As Michael says, if you don't fail, you don't learn. Who is Michael Betancourt? You ask. Well. He's a physicist and statistician whose research focuses on the development of robust statistical workflows, computational tools, and pedagogical resources that help bridge the gap between statistical theory and scientific practice. Michael works a lot on differential geometry and probability theory, and he often lives in high-dimensional spaces where he meets with a good friend of his, Hamiltonian Monte Carlo. Then you won't be surprised to learn that Michael is one of the core developers of the seminal probabilistic programming language, STAN. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 6, recorded November 21, 2019. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the project, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andora. You can follow me on Twitter at alex underscore like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbayesstats.anvil.app. That's learnbayesstats.anvil.app. Let me show you how to be a good crazy and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. A Bayesian is someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick the flow, mostly I'm watching eyes wide. Okay, Michael Betancourt, uh, welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time. I'm uh, honored uh, to have you on the show. You're actually my first guest from the Stan ecosystem. So I'm really happy to have you there. I got to represent somehow. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Plus, as many people, I follow you on Twitter and I always enjoy your uh, statistical threads. I always learn something from them. So (laughs) thank you also for that. (laughs) So I'd like to start because you do a lot of things. So it's not uh, that easy to start the interview when I pray for that. But maybe we can just start uh, by your background, because if I understood correctly, you started by studying experimental physics. And then you transition into more of a statistics focus. So I'd really like to hear the story behind that. And also, maybe how long did it take you for you to feel comfortable in your new field?
1: I don't know if anyone ever feels comfortable statistics. You just feel less (laughs) uncomfortable day by day. Yeah, so I started off as a physicist, did my undergrad and graduate degrees in experimental physics, particle physics. I had taken a lot of statistics classes. None of them were, were particularly good. And so I knew of it as, you know, analysis. It was clear in a lot of the projects I'd worked on for research that physicists were kind of making it up. There was this kind of inconsistency. So there's definitely something kind of missing in my view of the world. And when I got to grad school and started working on my own project, one of the postdocs in the lab had suggested I do machine learning and kind of gave me this physics write-up of machine learning, which I knew was a little off. So I went to some of my friends and asked, what should I read? What's the kind of machine learning thing that would kind of give me a sense of the state of the art? And a good friend of mine who was also in grad school at the time, and he, and during undergrad, he had gone to Cambridge and took Dave Mackay's class. So he did an exchange for a month or two. He recommended Dave Mackay's book and Chris Bishop's book. And those, I think, kind of set me on my way. Especially Dave Mackay has this example in chapter three of his book, Information Theory, Inference, and Learning Algorithms, I think it is, Atala. And he described this broken detector. And really what he was doing is he was describing generative modeling, where you, you build a model that captures the structure of your particular circumstance. And that was the thing that really got me, this idea of building a model and then having the statistics support the model as opposed to the model support the statistics algorithms that happen to be quick to run. So was trying to read as much as I could. I read all the famous Bayesian textbooks. Everything was still kind of remote. And, and I think in hindsight, the problem was that nothing really explained statistics from a modeling perspective. Nothing started with a model and talked about how you supported it. Everything was just by example and said, here's this set of models and you just pick one that you think is relevant or here's this estimator that's implicitly based on this kind of model, and you just use that. And that was very much intention tension with my experience as a physicist, where we spent a lot of time understanding the detectors and understanding the environments in which we're making our experiments. And none of that information was getting translated into what I was reading, right? There's no ability to translate that into the analyses that were presented. So I kind of hacked my own kind of things. I was playing around with Gaussian processes and Hamiltonian Monte Carlo, which as a physicist just seemed like the natural thing to do. Funny story, I never started with random off Metropolis or Gibbs samplers. I just started with HMC because it was seemingly appropriate thing. In that time, I got really interested about Hamiltonian Monte Carlo. So one of the things that was interesting with HMC is that people keep presenting it as this physics analogy. And it's, well, the physicists do this, and it seems to work. Particularly Radford Neal had this review that came out. And a lot of it just kind of defaulted to these physics papers that were in the context of lattice QCD and weren't really necessarily relevant to the statistical applications. And so there's all these degrees of freedom that are chosen, and people just kept saying, well, the physicists say to do it this way, so let's do it this way. And that bothered me as a physicist, because I didn't see any physicists who were actually saying that. (laughs) Uh, okay. So I was, you know, trying to get at the, the heart of what was going on. And that led to this very unpredicted path where I started learning differential geometry to build up some theory. And then I was cold emailing professors about postdocs. And I got one response from the UK, and that was Mark And he was putting together a team to really try to understand this. And so I ended up after a year or two in New York, waiting for the funding to become available. I then went to the UK, started learning statistics and modeling in a real rigorous way while also developing some theory for HMC. While I was in New York before that started, I randomly met some people on the stand team. And so I started, you know, kind of developing early on, uh, right after the version one release. And it just kind of went from there. So none of this was really planned. None of it was really an active decision. It just kind of happened. And I'm pretty grateful for how it happened. I'm really excited to have the opportunity to help a lot of scientists and practitioners who had that same conflict of knowing there's something more they should be doing with their models other than just throwing a logistic regression down because they're supposed to. And it's a pretty exciting time to be involved in that community.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's really interesting because um, this idea that you gave about the generative processes that you have to think about to inform how you're going to model the case study is really interesting. I think indeed uh, one of the main assets of Bayesian methods, at least in my mind, when I started learning Bayesian inference too, I was uh, quite amazed at this idea that, well, just think about the way the data and the process works and is generating, and then it can inform how you can model it. And I find that really powerful too, indeed. Um, Yeah,
1: I think there's this really common misconception where people get really excited about Bayes, but what they're really getting excited about is probabilistic modeling. And the problem is that frequentist methods are presented as these kind of orthodox estimators with no concept of models, which isn't necessarily true, right? You can present frequentist methods from a modeling-based perspective. It's just really, really hard. (laughs) Frequentist methods are not a methodology a frequentist analysis doesn't tell you what to do a frequentist analysis tells you how to calibrate what you expect your method to do so there's just kind of open world and what the possibilities are and it's not presented that way it's instead presented as here's this fixed set of tools just grab one and apply it without really thinking about whether it's appropriate bayesian methods are kind of the opposite in a bayesian methodology there's an explicit thing to do you take your observational model you take your prior model, you, build, you condition on the data, you build the posterior, and then you compute posterior expectation values. And it's kind of hard to do that without having a model, right? Like you can construct Bayesian estimators and treat them like frequentist techniques, but the way Bayes is typically presented is from that model perspective. And so people often get very excited and even zealous of Bayesian methods. And I have to admit, I was also like this. I trashed a lot of the kind of typical frequentist stuff. And while a lot of it is garbage, there is some utility there. It's just not presented in that way. And so I think a lot of this conversation about probabilistic programming and inference and model-based inference needs to be centered on the model. And then you talk about inferential techniques on top of that. That's what I try to do in my case studies, and I think that helps avoid a lot of the confusion about what methods are good, what methods are bad, what methods are appropriate, what methods are going to answer the questions that you care
0: about. Uh, yeah, okay. Because recently uh, I spoke with Chris Von Kong and Carol from the PyMC team, and they seem to think that one of the main added values of Bayesian inference was when you care about uncertainty. So from what you said there, would you agree with that assessment? And is it also how you usually advise people on how to decide when they need to use Bayesian tools? I'm curious about that.
1: Again, I think that's based on a very popular misconception about what frequentist methods are, right? And again, I want to preface that I am a Bayesian. I think the Bayesian methodology is the right methodology, but a lot of the arguments back and forth are based on some misconceptions about how both of the approaches work. And I've been in a few invited circumstances where I'm kind of brought in as the statistician, and I'll see these kind of frequentist applied practitioners and these Bayesian applied practitioners yelling over at each other and get these very intense arguments, and they're <laughs> arguing about misconceptions. And none of them really understand enough to be able to explain why they like what they like. And I think one of those is this idea that frequentist methods don't have uncertainty. And I think that's largely based on the fact that a lot of people confuse frequentist with maximum likelihood. And in a maximum likelihood analysis, right, you construct an estimator based on point estimator. And so you just report a point hence the lack of uncertainty. And people just see that point estimate and then they presume that's the only outcome of the analysis, which is technically not true. Maximum likelihood analysis makes this assumption of asymptotics and this very nice limit of your likelihood function so that you can characterize your whole likelihood with just information at the mode or at the, the maximum likelihood point. So it's not just that point, it's also the gradients really the second derivatives, which allow you to then construct intervals and senses of uncertainty. And in that limit, those intervals have very nice coverage properties. So they're very well calibrated. You you know, if you report this interval, you have some sense of how often it will cover the right values. And in other words, you get a sense of the sensitivity to the particular data. So if you perturb the data, how much does your interval change? Now, a lot of people don't use it that way, right? Because they just, they think of it as a plug and chug estimator, they get their point and they report the point and they're done. And that's absolutely a terrible thing. That is a very poor way to characterize your model and your inferences. But again, it's not really as a true Freemontist method is proposing. And so when you make a, a kind of a more fair comparison and you start looking at things like maximum likelihood intervals based around that differential information compared to say posterior intervals, then you can have a fair apples to apples comparison about what's a better characterization of the uncertainty. They're both characterizing uncertainty, they're just doing it in different ways. Um, once you get to that point and you start comparing those, then you can say, yeah, that having a probabilistic quantification of your uncertainty is a really powerful thing. The computation is a little more straightforward. It's a little more intuitive. People tend to have some latent intuition about what a probability distribution is, even if they don't really understand that they do. And the other real benefit is that it separates out the inference from the decision-making. So one thing, way you can interpret the frequentist methods is that they're making a decision. They're deciding to only report a part of the parameter space, say contained within an interval. And that decision has to be calibrated to make sure that the kind of expected utility is reasonable. In the Bayesian analysis, you don't have to cater your inferences to a particular decision. You can make your inferences, get your posterior, and then you can apply a decision analysis after the fact. And that decoupling of inference and decision is really powerful. So yeah, to summarize, the quantifying uncertainty is really important, but all statistical methods quantify uncertainty if you're using them properly. I think the more relevant question is how you're characterizing uncertainty and is it intuitive? Is it useful in the application? But also is it computationally practical, right? And that's another common misconception that Bayes is slow, which is based on comparing a full model-based analysis in a Bayesian context to this asymptotic maximum likelihood context, which are not fair comparisons.
0: That's a nice uh, overview of uh, different methods. But then because you said that you're a Bayesian and you think that it's the right method to use usually. So what's their main asset in your mind? Why do you say that?
1: Yeah, so a Bayesian methodology is entirely probabilistic. And so it has this very nice simplification in that anything you do is a probabilistic calculation, right? You construct your prior, you construct your observational model, you condition, that's a probabilistic operation. But really what you're doing is you're computing plus your expectation values. And so all of the implementation challenge comes down to how do you compute expectation values? And that's something that, you know, something like MCMC, a tool like Stan, can handle in a relatively generic way, as opposed to a frequentist method where you have to take your model and then you have to be able to calibrate it against all this counterfactual data that you haven't seen before, which is not a bad thing to do. It's something we should be doing more with our Bayesian methods anyways. But a frequentist approach has to do these kind of worst case analyses. Because there's no way of averaging over the parameter space, you have to look at the kind of extremes of the parameter space to see what the worst case data could be, to see how just how bad your estimator could behave. And those analyses are really, really hard. They're computationally demanding, if not infeasible. They require a lot of very subtle theoretical expertise to understand how to approximate in a reasonable way. And this is why everyone just assumes asymptotics. They just assume everything looks Gaussian because then you can skip a lot of steps, right? Things become analytic and you can just work it out by hand.
0: Is it also why you said that Bayesian methods are not that slow compared to frequentist methods? It's because actually people usually use the asymptotic properties, but they can't really do the full analysis as you do in the Bayesian framework.
1: Yeah, exactly. So if you're comparing fairly and you're going to take... Hey, here's a complex model that has all the spoke information for my particular application. And I want to do some analysis on that. I want to do a frequentist analysis, a Bayesian analysis. I'm going to compare them side by side. The Bayesian analysis can all be done with something like MCMC, at least if it's sufficiently nice. Whereas the frequentist analysis, you have to do these multiple steps. You have to be able to compute an estimator. You have to bring in a loss function. You have to compute these expected losses. You have to do a worst case over all those expected losses. It's a pretty demanding procedure and arguably much more complex than the Bayesian analysis. And then if you do have asymptotics, if you do have a lot of data and your model is clean enough, and your data jetting process is clean enough for the asymptotics to really kick in, then you can apply that simplification to both approaches, right? You can do an asymptotic frequentist analysis, but you can also do an asymptotic Bayes analysis where everything gets really fast. And you can use those same analytic tricks to do the Bayesian construction as quickly as the frequentist construction. The problem is people kind of compare diagonally, right? They compare the full Bayes to the asymptotic frequentist, which is giving the frequentist method a head start. So in terms of implementation, it's just a lot cleaner in a Bayesian context. And then you have all the additional benefits. You know, you have your prior, so you can incorporate domain expertise in a very principled way. You can look at things like prior predictive and posterior predictive to get a sense of what your model's trying to do. You can calibrate really nicely, something that we've been doing a lot, for example, simulation based calibration. I think it's the physicist in me that likes this unification, that there's this very clean procedural skeleton, and then you just follow those rules in each application.
0: It's very clear. And actually, what I'm curious about is because you work with both with people in academia and in industry. So from what you said, because we all know that frequentist methods are the default, but from what you said, I guess that you think that people should use Bayes as a default. And from the sample you have, did you notice any difference in how widespread Bayesian tools are? I mean, between like different academic fields, between different industries, or even between academia and and industry?
1: So I have a very biased sample from both academia and industry, because <laughs> yeah. I have the privilege of being able to choose who I collaborate with and yeah. who I work with on the client mm-hmm. side of things.
0: No, plus maybe also there is a selection bias in your sample, because people yeah. call you maybe when they already are interested in Bayesian methods, I guess. but Right, exactly. So I, <laughs> I don't spend any of my client
1: time trying to argue for Bayesian methods. I'm working with people who have already done the work to realize that the Bayesian methodology is worth it, that doing principled model building is going to be worth the investment. And I'm there to help guide them through that process. There's enough people who want to do it right that I don't think it's worth my time to try to convince people who haven't gotten there yet. And so from that perspective, when they've already bought into it, it's very similar on the academic industrial side. It's building models, it's capturing domain expertise, it's evaluating the models, it's looking for systematic effects and all of these things that corrupt that delicate phenomenology that you're looking for, so that by correcting for all of that, you can isolate more cleanly this thing that you're after. You know, there's kind of different politics and there's different challenges on the two sides. Industry tends to be much more isolated. Once you get into principal domain expertise, it gets a lot more proprietary. So there's less back and forth and communicating openly about your models. In academia, there's much more openness, but there's also much more inertia. And there's a lot more kind of gatekeepers and communities that just don't allow changes to happen. I always get a little bit awkward when early career researcher comes to me and and asks about how to do a Bayesian analysis. And I'm often... And really excited to help them through it. But at the same time, I have to warn them early that I can't help them get the papers published. I can't help them get jobs if their field's not ready to embrace these Bayesian ideas. And in fact, it can be counterproductive because if there are you know very orthodox gatekeepers in the community, they can, as reviewers and people on job committees, this can destroy your career. I try to be upfront about people and those who are sufficiently excited about the science and really think that this is the right thing to do, especially when the data are expensive or have been very challenging to collect and, and they really want to respect and, and get everything out of what's there, then I jump in and you know, spend the time. And that's that's really exciting, right? Because you're continuously working with people who are really pushing the limits of what's possible and are doing some incredible.
0: Mm, that's very interesting what you said about uh, the dynamics of change in academia. Also from my perspective, what I saw, but I guess it's of course depends a lot on the field you're talking about. I guess. Um, Yeah, I think that's a common theme
1: in a lot of this. Once you embrace modeling, you have to embrace the bespoke context of. Of something. And so you throw all these generalities out, right? So if somebody says, like, is it good for my career to go into a Bayesian methodology? Is this field good in statistics? Is this kind of technique going to be useful in this application? Is this industry ready for this kind of thing? Those questions can't be answered in any generality. There's heterogeneity, there's other systematic differences. And so most of these answers, as kind of sad as ends up being, are kind of just like, I don't know, it depends,
0: you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> So I want to get back to something you said earlier that you talk often about. It's this concept of principled Bayesian workflow. Can you tell me more about that? And what's this workflow like? And why is it important?
1: I use the phrase principle a lot. It's kind of a code word. It's like a word I'm throwing out there to differentiate what I'm trying to recommend to people versus what they might have already seen. And ultimately what it means is not accepting defaults. I think that might be kind of the most fundamental nature of it. Any choice you make, you have to question whether it's the right choice. And so the principle part of it is not just using a tool, it's making sure the tool is the right tool for the job at hand. And so the workflows are all about setting up methodologies to facilitate that process. In the Bayesian context, that means making sure that your fits are accurate, that your computational methods are faithfully reproducing what your posterior is trying to say. And once it does that, then you can, you know, trust that you're understanding what the model is trying to say. And and so you can understand the consequences of your modeling assumptions, right? A a common mistake people make, especially in more of the machine learning side of things, is they confound the model with the computation. And if you're going to really build a model, the computation is there to Serve the model, not the other way around. And so you have to have that accurate computation to be able to understand what your model's trying to say. And then you have to make sure your model's not. Speaking garbage, right? You have to go check your priors. You have to check your observational models and check the interaction of your observation model and your prior. What do your likelihood functions look like for different realizations of the data that can be generated from different model configurations within the context of that model? And so what's kind of nice about it is that a lot of those things that you want to look at all kind of tend to be different manifestations of the same thing. So as an example, if I wanted to make sure my computation was accurate, how do I do that? Well, I could try to fit multiple data sets and just make sure things don't break. But then what data sets do I want to fit against? Well, I could sample from the observational model if I had a model configuration. There's no particular model configuration that's elevated above any others, but I could sample from the prior, which quantifies the domains of, of reasonable model configurations. And so in the process of trying to figure out the right scope or context for evaluating my computation, I've implicitly sampled from the prior predictive distribution. And once I've done that, once I've sampled model configurations from the prior and then observations from the corresponding data tetering processes and then fit those observations, the simulated observations, I can now check the computation, but I can also look at the range of posteriors and I can start asking questions about experimental design. Are my likelihoods going to be narrow enough that I learn enough? Are there correlations or degeneracies that limit what I can learn? And am I learning enough to answer the questions that I care about? I can also use those prior predictive samples, the simulated data that were intermediate to all of this and analyze them and make sure that they look reasonable. So my prior isn't supporting very weird configurations that give very unexpected data. And so it all kind of fits into this very clean, Workflow where you spend a lot of time on some expensive stuff, particularly the fitting your model over and over again on the simulated data. But once you've done that, it's just this wealth of information and it becomes very straightforward to check everything all in one go. So there's this beautiful elegance to how it's all coming together.
0: Yeah. And also from my experience, from what you said, um, thinking hard about your priors and doing prior predictive checks can actually help your model sample because if your model has a weird geometry and is multi-dimensional or uh, hierarchical. Then you can have problems if you just take, like many people do, very flat priors, like having a standard deviation of one hundred on a prior or something like that. So indeed, yeah, as you say, it's everything is tied together. Yeah. And nothing can kind of be
1: studied independently, right? Because of that coupling. And it's a hard jump to make because people want defaults, right? They go to flat prior densities because they want a default prior that they can say, well, I'm not responsible for this. Bespoke modeling requires a lot of responsibility. You have to take a risk and put this out there and say, these are my assumptions. This is my model. I'm proud of my model. And I think it's going to do well. And it makes you vulnerable to attack and criticism. And there's a reason people don't want to do it. But at the same time, you have to, if you want to be able to exploit your domain expertise, if you want to be able to account for the unique ways your data gets corrupted in your particular experiment that no one else's experiment has to deal with. The only way to get the heart of what your data is trying to tell you is to do this bespoke stuff. And you've got to accept that and you've got to be okay with failing.
0: Yeah, plus also, I think there is also a time dimension in the sense that uh, thinking hard about your assumptions and priors and having all of that bespoke to your use case takes more time than just going with a default uh, solution.
1: Absolutely. And in fact, you see that in the literature as well. One of the things that we've been able to do research-wise is with a tool like Stan, especially with diagnostics like divergences and you know, really looking at the fine details that HMC is able to resolve, we can start studying modeling techniques that people have kind of taken for granted and find the degeneracies that have always been there, but people just didn't really appreciate and have been you know skewing or biasing their decisions or not giving them accurate uncertainties. Right? It's one thing to say you want uncertainty. It's another to do the work to make sure you're accurately quantifying your uncertainty. And one of the patterns we've seen over and over again is you'll take a particular technique. So, for example, a Gaussian process. This is a research project that that we've worked on the last few years. If I take a simple Gaussian process with a squared exponential kernel, really any kernel that has a length scale and kind of a marginal variance term to it, which includes matern and some other classes. There's a fundamental degeneracy when you have finite data. Asymptotically, there can be some degeneracies, these are known, but things get a little more subtle when you have finite data. And that means you can't resolve these parameters separately. And the only way to ensure that your fits have a chance of capturing your posteriors in an accurate way is to very carefully put priors that avoid some of the nastier degenerate parts of the model. And you've of course, have to make sure those priors are reasonable and you don't want those kind of weird parts of the, of the parameter space. But people just weren't fully cognizant of just what was needed, like what, what's kind of the necessary domain expertise before your particular technique becomes viable. And so the consequence of that is this very kind of nice coupling between experimental design and knowing what covariates you're sampling with your Gaussian process and, and what their extent is to prior and a prior that's compatible with that experimental design. And so we go from people just running GPs to running GPs having a methodology for specifying reasonable priors. So that the whole thing becomes much more robust. And as you said, it fits faster. There's no divergences, you're getting accurate quantification. But at the same time, your posteriors are also just narrower and less degenerate and more informative because you've put in just that right amount of domain expertise. You know, I think people get a little bit upset or frustrated with priors because they think it's like all this domain expertise I have to put in and in most cases it's just a little bit But in a very real sense all you're trying to do with a prior is separate out what's infinity and what's not so what are all the things that are basically large enough to be infinity and what are all the things that are small enough to be reasonable that threshold is all you want to define and you just have to define where is that threshold is manifesting and then how to you know explore or what happens when you get the wrong threshold and that way you get that feedback in this workflow that we were talking about to ensure that you build a better prior
0: yeah that's very interesting well, maybe because we talked a lot, I think, about uh, which mistakes you think are the most common in the Asian modeling workflows, but maybe to be a little more optimistic, because you do also uh, quite a lot of teaching. I'm curious, from your experience teaching this workflow, what are the essential skills or rules of thumb, if you will, you're trying to instill in your students?
1: I think it's just building up enough fundamentals to be able to build a bespoke model and to give people the tools they need to move away from having to use black boxes to do something on their own. One way I've been trying to analogize it is probability theory and a lot of statistics is a language, right? And model building is writing a novel, right? It's you're writing your novel that you think is the right thing to do. And in order to do that, you need to understand the language to write it in, right? Like you can't write something unless you know the language. And so a lot of learning how to do Bayesian inference is not that different from learning a foreign language. You don't start by writing a novel in Spanish. If you don't understand Spanish, you start with simple snippets, right? You start with little cute stories and really bad videos, right? And those toy stories give you the opportunity to work with the language and understand the structure of the language and build up your competency until you're ready to, to start doing things on your own. And so what I try to do in my teaching is build that or accelerate the building of that competency, right? Nobody's going to come out of my courses or any of my teaching, you know, after three days of eight hours a day of just intense material and be ready. It takes months to digest and be able to apply to their problems. But those months will be very productive because they have the foundation to build on. They have everything, and now they're just going back and digesting it and, and kind of really making sure they understand it and then building upon it towards the goal of where they're going.
0: That's both stressful and reassuring. I say from the perspective of someone who is still learning a lot about uh, Bayesian methods. Stressful, of course, because it can feel overwhelming, the fact that, wow, I still have so much to learn. And it's also reassuring to hear people like you who are really recognized as experts in their field to say that, well, you know, it's okay to fail. And actually, it's not only okay, it's necessary because if you don't fail, then you didn't really learn what you were supposed to learn. And so don't be afraid of just taking step by step. And then if you fail, it's okay, you're gonna learn it. And then you're gonna get bigger and bigger. And in the end, that's how you try and be less and less uncomfortable with statistics, as you said at the beginning.
1: Right. There's nothing embarrassing about building a model whose assumptions are bad. That's a learning opportunity to put it in a more optimistic frame. But I just emphasize again, like this isn't a school test, right? This isn't something where you're just finding the right answer to a question that was posed. You're asking the questions and the answer doesn't exist right? You're trying to find out this bespoke, unique problem. And if nobody else has tackled your problem before, then there is no solution guide. So it's kind of impossible to tackle these bespoke modeling problems without failing because you're looking at it for the first time, right? You're probing this part of model technique space that no one's ever been there before. You really are on this frontier. And so you really have to get comfortable with that consistent failing and consistent uncertainty and knowledge that something's wrong, something's not fully there. Otherwise, the only way to to avoid that is to solve all the problems, which isn't going to happen, or is to go back to problems that people have already solved. And that's why people go to GLMs and they run Glimmer and they run Elmer, right? Because it's this thing that like the statistics becomes ancillary. It's this thing that you run at the end, it's already been a solved problem. And that's where I think people really miss the opportunity to not just use their domain expertise, but deal with the systematics and the selection effects and the biases in their data generating processes to really get to the thing that they care about. And I feel like so much of science is being limited right now by the use of these default models and this kind of refusal to integrate the domain expertise with the statistical analyses.
0: That reminds me of one of the last chapters, I think, in uh, Richard McEnrath's book, Statistical Rethinking. In the second edition, he's got a new chapter called Generalized Linear Madness. He's basically arguing as you just did, that, yeah, GLMs are there to have generalized solutions, but often you need uh, more bespoke models and bespoke solutions. And interestingly, he uses the exact same term, bespoke. (laughs) That's not a term that you hear every day in English, so that's interesting here too. But something I often... I wonder when building my own models, for instance, is that it requires both statistical skills, as you said, probability theory and so on. Of course, scientific skills and knowledge, as you emphasized, and also sometimes it requires informatics skills because often your model won't fit or won't even run because of, I don't know, high dimensions or weird geometry that uh, HMC can't really handle, or maybe you're trying to sample discrete parameters. So I wonder how do you personally solve these technical issues that you encounter? And what do you advise your students usually to do? Because I know you care a lot about the practical implementation of the algorithms, but What do you do and what do you say when the algorithm can't run to your student?
1: It depends. (laughs) (laughs) To go back. Yeah. To the point I was making earlier, when a model fails, it fails to fit accurately. It can fail in infinitude of ways. If you're running Stan and you see a divergence, I don't know what caused that divergence. It could be many, many things. And so it's like a little detective story within the context of your model, right? You have to know what the model's trying to do. You have to know what the data's trying to do. You look at pairs plots. You look at where the divergences are concentrating. And it will tell you something about the areas of parameter space that are problematic. And then you have to know enough about your problem to be able to consider or hypothesize why would that part of parameter space be problematic? And exactly, you need the domain expertise on the statistical side and then the applied side and to be able to understand both of those because the problem is manifesting through the statistics, but the origin of that pathology is in the applied experimental design. Almost all problems come from some form of degeneracy or weak identifiability where you're trying to answer a question in a certain parameterization of your model configuration space. And your data just cannot inform all of those parameters independently. It can only inform these very complex surfaces of where these parameters interact with each other. And that means you, know, you might need to re-parameterize. Maybe there's a way of parameterizing that non-identifiable surface. Maybe you need to add more data. You know, A lot of times, it's not just about repeating the experiment over and over again, because there's only so much you can learn when the data is fundamentally not identified. But you can observe different kinds of data. So for example, if you're measuring some signal that has some background contamination, it doesn't matter how much you measure the total combination, you'll never be able to separate out signal versus background until you go and just measure the background. So sometimes you need different kinds of data. Sometimes you need better domain expertise to separate out or kind of isolate or or reduce or suppress that degeneracy or those pathological regions. And that goes back to what I was talking about with Gaussian processes. So many techniques, hierarchical models, even linear regression and GLMs have a ton of weird degeneracies implicit in them. And if if you don't set your priors right, you will suffer. You will see weird behaviors. Hierarchical models are the worst. This is something that's very underappreciated. We talk about centering and non-centering and the kind of complexities therein, and that's already really complicated. But it turns out there are all kinds of degeneracies on the hyperparameters, even for a linear hierarchical model where everything's normal, there's a lot of interactions between the population location and population scale right? And one way of thinking about this is even though you're fitting everything jointly, you can kind of sort of approximate things sequentially. So for example, if I have, you know, n groups and I have one data per group, I can think about those data informing the individual parameters, the group level parameters, and then those group level parameters inform the population parameters, right? So I kind of sequentially propagate the information through the model. Well, if I only have two groups, it doesn't matter how much data I have, how informative those data are. If I only have two group parameters, I can't compute a standard deviation, right? There's no way I can evaluate the scale. And so when people do like two-level hierarchical models, or they don't have a lot of data, so even though they have 10 groups, 10 levels, 10 individuals, each of them are not very informed very well, it comes really hard for the model, for the posterior, to be able to, to discriminate between the location and the scale varying around. And that manifests in even more funnels than the ones we typically present. And so this is something I go into my course material more, where we go through and actually see all of those degeneracies and the priors that are needed to separate them out. And that's another nice part about the workflow, these workflow ideas, is you can take a problem and you can set it in the context of a particular case study and you can demonstrate, here's this circumstance, let's watch it fail, let's do the investigation, let's try a bunch of things, see what the problem is, and then reveal the underlying mathematical pathology. So you kind of guide them through the story. When they encounter this, they've had some familiarity for that process and they can kind of on their own try to, investigate and see if they can understand what's going on.
0: Yeah, exactly. Knowing, and it goes back to what you said earlier, that knowing that failing is okay. And when you fail, you just have to be a little detective and going back into the guts of the model and trying to decipher what it's telling you by failing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think as frustrating as it is, there is this real kind of adrenaline rush when you're working on a model with someone and you're isolating some problem. And then all of a sudden somebody goes like, oh, oh my God, that's that background. That's this corruption. And there's this thing that they were aware of, but didn't think was relevant. And you have this interpretation for it and you can go in and you can expand your model or you can change your data or you can somehow account for it. And everything fits beautifully. Those are kind of the moments to live for, right? Those are the little, the little times that make all this frustration worthwhile. And they're only that great because you've been failing so much to get to that point, right? These things are subtle and they're hard and they're challenging and they don't get any easier, right? You don't get to a point where all of a sudden statistics is easy. You may get to a point where you've seen more problems and more pathologies and you can better predict what might be going on. But the resolution to those problems is so different in every application. I might know what the pathology is by looking at a few plots, but I'm not going to know how to fix it unless I can sit down with somebody who knows, has the domain expertise and knows how the data was collected and we can work together to figure out the right way of addressing the pathology.
0: And actually do you do you have in mind one of those moments for you when you were, I don't know, bumping your head against the walls <laughs> because of a model that wouldn't run? And then one day you had one of these Eureka moments with one of your co-author or colleagues.
1: Yeah. um, So my favorite story, I've told this on another podcast, but I imagine the audience is officially different. I'll tell it again. I was in the UK working with some malaria researchers and we were working on these vaccines. So there is a malaria vaccine right now. It has moderate success, but it's not quite enough to prevent outbreaks. Malaria is very sneaky. And so there are these auxiliary vaccines that are being tested that can synergize with the existing vaccines to really drop the malaria infection down low enough that you can't get these rapid outbreaks. And so we were testing on mice, very complicated experiments, but the process was pretty straightforward. You would take a mouse, you would infect it with mice malaria, which doesn't affect humans, fortunately. So you can go in and play with the And then you starve some mosquitoes. The mosquitoes feed on an anesthetized mouse. And so they pick up the malaria-infected blood. The malaria develops in the gut of the mosquito. And you can actually dissect the mosquitoes with pincers. You pull the mosquito apart and you can count the malaria on their stomach. And then those malaria on the stomach, the eggs, they pass up to the salivary glands of the mosquito and they act as a plug. So when a mosquito bites you, one of the reasons malaria is so effective is the mosquito has to clear its salivary glands before it can eject the saliva that keeps your blood from coagulating the anticoagulant and when it tries to do that if there's this malaria plug in it literally shoots it like a bullet so the mosquito comes in it goes to feed and in the process it shoots this malaria bullet into your bloodstream it gets in it's just it's evolved to be insidious. And then the process repeats. So you can take these mosquitoes, have them feed on mice, and then have those mosquitoes bite uninfected mice. And then you can have fresh mosquitoes bite those reinfected mice. And you can model the actual generational effects of the vaccines. It was very, very cool. A lot of grad students did a lot of very hard bench work because you're literally dissecting mosquitoes, you're anesthetizing mice by hand, and the mosquitoes they feed in a little Dixie cup. You just take a little Dixie cup, put cheesecloth over it, and then you lay the mouse over it. And then the mosquitoes, when they eat, they gorge them themselves. And they gorge themselves so much they can't fly. They're too heavy. So they will immediately just diarrhea the blood out until they can fly again. And so you get these little cups that were just like a Stephen King movie. It's disgusting. It's blood everywhere. It's, and it's sprayed like it's bad. So the students went through so much work to to get all that. And I was working with a postdoc on building this model, right? And again, like I couldn't just take the data and fit it. I was working with the domain expert to fit this, to understand all of the little things. And we're working together for months on this model. We went through many, many iterations until eventually we had something that was very generative. It captured a lot of the population structure. It captured a lot of the heterogeneity. It modeled each stage of the process where you have blood results from the mosquito around its stomach and you have the salivary gland observations. You have the mice, parasitemia, infection density, all this data, right? We modeled it. It was was so good. We, there were all these systematic effects we were accounting for. It was amazing. And it didn't fit. Seven out of the eight arms in the experiment. So seven out of the experimental configurations fit fine. One configuration did not fit. And we couldn't figure out what it was. And it was particularly bad because that configuration was a combination of two other configurations that did work. So there's no reason why the interaction would have caused the problem. Something just didn't make any sense. And finally, we convinced ourselves that maybe there's something in the data that we're missing. Maybe there's something about how this particular experiment was run that somehow got corrupted when the others didn't. So we emailed the lab manager. And I think it was within a few hours. We were sitting in a cafe in London, and we got this email back. I, I could see Ellie... My colleague, her face kind of just like her eyes lit up, but then also like were sad. It was like this combination of excitement and and dread. And the email <laughs> described so so the, the lab manager had gone back, looked at the lab notebook for all of the data that we were using, and kind of shyly noted that the one that was causing us problems apparently was taken the day they painted the lab offices, and it was noted that the mosquitoes were dying and were otherwise just acting erratically because of the paint fumes.
0: Okay, no way. Oh. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
1: and so we we know we didn't end up modeling that we just took the data out and then we had some students recollect the data everything fit beautifully it was amazing right but like after exhausting everything and these are the things you can't account for that right like you're not going to download some Kaggle set and learn how to model the paint fumes affecting your mosquitoes because that's so particular to that data set right and it was such a relief but at the same time just like when you're doing very crude analyses and I don't mean crude in a bad way but like when you're first applying qualitative methods to an application, especially in industry, it's okay to do a simple model. It's okay to do a logistic regression because you're just trying to get the low-hanging fruit. There's so many gains to be made by doing a simple analysis that you don't have to worry about a complicated analysis yet. But as you go back and you start asking more precise questions and you start looking deeper into the data, that's when you have to
0: confront all of these problems. I'd say that bottom line, people should always model paint fumes into their years' case. <laughs> I was just wondering, uh, what are the stand team's uh, projects for the coming months and maybe what are you focusing on uh, currently?
1: Yeah, so I think one thing that is important to recognize is the STAN team is very large and very diverse. So a lot of people are coming from different applications are working on different things, and there's no kind of STAN research agenda. There's certainly a Columbia agenda. There's a lot of people who collaborate with Andrew Goldman. There's kind of an agenda there. But, you know, for example, I'm not really part of that community, and I have my own things. But there's, you know, people in, in Europe and all over who are doing all kinds of cool things that are kind of independent of what everyone else is doing. So there's certainly interesting stuff going on in terms of STAN development, where it's a little more coherent. You know, the GPU functionality, Sebastian Weber is doing a lot of work on the threading and kind of making the parallelization a lot easier, which has a lot of interesting potential applications in terms of parallelizing warmup and other kinds of features. There's always kind of new gradients. People ask a lot about how do we improve the algorithm? At some level, there's just small tweaks to be made. Like HMC is pretty much at the frontier until we you know, have some kind of big mathematical breakthrough on some very, very hard problems. And so that means that most of the relevant problems are making gradients fast. And so really kind of the auto-diff library support and the stand language. And so there's a new compiler being written for the stand language that's hopefully make it a lot easier to use and have some cool advanced functionality, like you know, automatically cleaning up your models or suggesting mistakes that you may have made. And then, you know, that all runs on the San Math library and the more, you know, you can develop fast gradients for certain kinds of functions that are used a lot. So, for example, we have ODEs, we have algebraic equations, solvers, you know, one-dimensional integrators, right? These are all things that we can do very efficient derivatives for. And so this gives this whole new functionality to users. It's not very, you know, exciting. It's not very sexy in the classic sense, but it's where you can make real contributions. And I think that's where a lot of exciting stuff is. So personally, I'm currently working on a project with some colleagues about doing hidden Markov model gradients very fast. And in the process of that, so we started off, you know, wanting to implement a hidden Markov model functionality in Stan so that you don't have to implement the four backward equations yourself. You don't have to integrate out all of the discrete hidden states. You just define your transition matrix and your observations, and it takes care of all that for you this is a big complaint we get from a lot of ecologists but to do that we need to write the function but then we need the gradients of that function and the gradients if we do them naively are a little bit weird and inefficient they're very straightforward, just, just slow and i knew there's there was something weird going on and so we've been working out and realized that there's this like whole kind of different mathematical way of thinking about the gradients that gives us very very efficient probably orders of magnitude faster than what it would be otherwise for big hmms and so, you know, we have to get finished working through the math and then prototype things. And so that will be something that hopefully we'll see in Stan in the next few months. And that's uh, yeah, just kind of a fun side project. But mostly my priority right now is teaching and getting these case studies out and getting them into something that starts looking like a book. You know, there still isn't a great reference on model building, right? There's been some improvements. McElrath has made a lot of nice steps in that direction, but you know, like a really good reference on how to build models and and all the technical detail needed to make sure that you can do this on your own is what I spend most of my time on these days.
0: That sounds like a lot of awesome... Programs. I'm really looking forward to reading all that, and of course, uh, if you find the time to write a book, uh, I'd be enjoying that. Uh, when it's gonna come out? I mean, uh, that would be great. Actually, that's before uh, asking you the last two questions. I ask every guest just one last question related to books and resources. Actually, because that's interesting to have someone like you that does a lot of teaching. So I was wondering if you had some learning advice for our well, listeners, like quick tips, but uh, what they should focus on when they start learning base stats, and maybe what they should focus on when they are more advanced? I mean, just books or other resources that you have in mind?
1: Yeah, this is a question I get asked a lot. And I don't have great answers. So much of the material out there focuses on the wrong thing, in my opinion. So we talked earlier about people focusing on estimators and default techniques instead of model building in a bespoke fashion. And that's so largely true. You also have the problem that people in statistics who know all the technical detail that's needed, they just write these very dense technical resources. And then that leaves this gap where it has to be filled in by practitioners. So most of the readable work out there is from practitioners, people in applied science, in applied industries, but they don't necessarily know all of the important technical details, right? They're kind of often prone to oversimplifying and giving people kind of false confidence of how something works. And so trying to bridge that gap and, you know, I've been fortunate to have the last nine years, the opportunity of the last nine years to kind of go into statistics, Prometheus-like, kind of see the truth. And I'm trying to bridge that gap and bring it back and teach everything that's needed, but nothing beyond that, right? Kind of the necessary and sufficient level of math to really understand what you're doing, what it means to construct a Bayesian what is a posterior? What is a probability distribution? Even with that as making it as simple as possible, it's still pretty complex, which is why I've had to write a whole thing on probability theory and, you know, other kind of mathematical details to kind of build up to really understanding what inference is. I do think the McElroy's book is a nice intro to kind of start and build up, to start thinking about modeling and to start seeing some simple examples. The Ben Lambert has, a I think it's the Student's Guide to Statistics, is a similar kind of take where it, it build, tries to build up a lot of intuition. And even though it misses what it might opinion is some necessary technical detail, it's a way of starting and making it a little less overwhelming. And unfortunately beyond that, it's just, there are certain papers that have some really good aspects to them. There are some books that have good parts, but as a coherent package, I think we're we're lacking a lot. And, you know, it just comes back to the fact that there's the kind of misaligned incentives and the people who want to do model building are not the ones who have the statistical authority. And so we're hopefully bridging that gap a little bit and kind of breaking that wall with tools like Stan. But for now, I would just say, you've got to, start somewhere. So just try building models and think about your data generating process and write down just in text the structures and the things that you think would be relevant. You know, simulate. This, This is something I think a lot of people don't really appreciate is that if you can simulate data, you've built your model. If you have a simulator that can generate samples, that information needed to generate those samples is one-to-one with specifying a density for that model. You can't do one without the other. So people have, often, especially in flight fields, simulate. It's just something they do. It's, it's, they've, it's something they've learned how to incorporate into their analyses, even if they're not necessarily simulating in a robust way. But that process of simulating is a great way of, of getting started. So you know, think about how you would simulate the data and then start learning how to piece in the parts of the model. One way I like to try to to describe the modeling techniques themselves are like legos you start off with a few small legos a small little kit and you can build your spaceships and your dune buggies and all that fun stuff at least in a relatively simple way and then as you learn more you learn new techniques you're putting more legos into your toy box so that you can build fancier and fancier spaceships i think it's overwhelming if people try to learn everything at once right hierarchical models. So many people are just like, hey, can you teach me how to build a hierarchical model? And I want to be like, okay, do you understand probability theory? Do you understand Bayesian inference? Do you understand regression? Do you understand regression as a Taylor expansion of complex models? Okay, do you understand heterogeneity? Do you understand exchangeability? Now we can start talking about hierarchical models. Oh, by the way, it's going to take us a few weeks to go through all of the computational issues and all of the degeneracies that might happen in experimental design considerations and the prior specifications that you need. I think there is, just unfortunately, this misconception that you can just kind of jump in and use the technique. And unfortunately, if you really want to understand it, you have to build up. It's iterative. It's a constructive process. And so I understand that people need to do something. They don't have the time, as you were saying earlier, to spend forever learning. At the same time, you have to not go too far and try to build or fit models that you're not ready for because that's just asking for trouble. I was having a conversation in the last podcast episode I did for my Patreon supporters with an industrial practitioner And he was making the point that, you know, Bayes and tools like Stan can be kind of dangerous because they allow you to build a bespoke model. You can build bespoke models that have no relevance to your actual application and will give you garbage results. So there is this kind of responsibility, and you've got to, you know, slowly build up there's more to be done here in terms of teaching and explaining this process. And it's something I think is lacking, and and hopefully we'll be able to do more in the future. I was in Mexico a few months ago, and Jenny Bryant was giving a lot of really nice talks. And one of the things she was talking about was kind of how you learn to get into a technical subject. And she had this figure, I believe it's a famous figure, or it's becoming more famous, it's all over Twitter, I see it all over again these days, that says how you build a minimal viable product. And the example is a car. So the bad example is you build the wheels, and then the axles, and then the frame and then the windows and then the engine and then you have a car. And the problem with that is, yes, you've built up that car, but at no point in any of the intermediate steps was that a viable product. You couldn't ship a axles and wheels. The alternative is you start with a skateboard and then a scooter and then a bicycle and then a motorcycle and then a car. So you're changing the way you evolve towards that complex target, but each of those intermediate steps is while a simplification of what you're trying to do, it has utility on its own. And I think there are a lot of lessons can be learned there in terms of modeling, where, again, in terms of the Legos, right, it's not like you buy the giant kit with a thousand pieces and start there. You start with the small kit with 10 pieces. You learn how that works. You learn how to build simple models that can take a little bit of advantage of the data that you have. And then piece by piece, you take a new technique, new Lego. You learn how that works. You learn how it interacts with what you already have. And now you can build something a little more complicated.
0: Yeah. Start small and get bigger.
1: Yes. And again, think about learning a foreign language. You don't learn a foreign language by reading, you know, War and Peace in Spanish, right? You go little bit by little bit. You watch these cheesy toy cartoons and stories. And that's what gives you the ability to construct your foundation little bit by little bit. But in a way that at each step, you can do something a little more useful.
0: Yeah, I understand. Okay, so before we can all go beat Legos, I want to ask you the two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show because you've already been uh, very generous uh, with your time. So the first question is, if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? I mean, there's all the problems. (laughs) (laughs) I've been lucky in that a lot of the
1: things that have bothered me over the last, say, decade or so, I've had some decent resolution on. You know, I had all these questions about how HMC worked at a theoretical level, and we were able to develop a really rigorous theory to build things on. You know, for a long time, I didn't really understand automatic differentiation, and especially higher order. And I had this nomad project, and I was doing things heuristically, and I knew there was something deeper. And it took about four years to learn enough of the math and to talk to the right people. But I was able to figure out how that all fit together in a mathematical way to my satisfaction. And so I've been really lucky in that a lot of the big questions that have been hanging over my head have kind of resolved in the last few years. Now, of course, once you do that, it opens up new questions, but I don't know if there's anything that's like deep, you know, keeps me up at night. There's a lot, I mean, I, I want to get all these case studies out and, you know, keep understanding new modeling techniques and, you know, I don't really understand splines. I think principal priors on splines is a big open problem. I would love to be able to better understand that. You see this one little problem and sometimes it's just an isolated problem and sometimes it's an indication of a much deeper And I think the horseshoe example is is the latter um, because it's looking like more and more, when you have something like Gaussian observational model and you have that sigma that's absorbing all of this variation that you just are going to treat as stochastic, It interacts really weirdly with a lot of other modeling techniques. So like a lot of analysis assumes that sigma is fixed. When you try to learn that sigma at the same time you're learning everything else, bad things can happen. And I think there's like a very comprehensive question and answer there. And so that's something that I've been starting to think about recently. I'm in a very good position where, you know, because of the work I do, I get to think about these problems and try to work out those problems at the same time that I'm working, right? So I don't need to go on a sabbatical to a forest to to get the time. I'm in a very, very lucky and privileged position to be able to do that. And so once we end, I'll think about something I forgot that's been, you know, in the back of my head, but it's
0: been pretty good so far. No problem. You can email me and I, I try to record me doing an impression of you and... No problem. I did that, yeah. (laughs) And so second question is, uh, if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive, or fictional, how would it be? Oh, yeah, this
1: one's tricky. I've been around enough to kind of having, you know, met your idols, and some of it's worked out really well, and sometimes it's worked out very poorly. And so, you know, it would be kind of curious to talk to, you know, someone like a von Neumann, or the Rosenbluths. So the original Metropolis Hastings or Metropolis paper that started Markov chain Monte Carlo or introduced Markov chain Monte Carlo as an idea, it was really driven by the Rosenbluth husband-wife couple. The husband can't remember his first name at the moment. Kind of developed a lot of the mathematics, and his wife, who was a PhD in her own right, coded it up, right? And so you know, it'd be kind of interesting coding up these things on these big ENIAC computers. You know, it's a whole different world of programming. I'm sure like like Laplace might have been interesting, but he also might have been a dick, right? So
0: it's it's, it's yeah, it's really hard. <laughs> to say. Yeah, exactly. I think my answer to this question, I did that for the very first episode of the podcast, was going to be Condorcet. He was a buddy with uh, Laplace. So, you know, it's less risky to take this road because maybe I could have met uh, Laplace for drinks after dinner. And even if he were a dick, I just met him for like 30 minutes. It's okay, you know.
1: (laughs) I'd rather just sit down and, you know, have drinks and dinner with a scientist trying to do a cool problem who's really interested in the stats. It doesn't have to to be anyone particular, and especially when it's like a weird application you get to work with colleagues who are studying like how climate change affects wine you know and then like next year we're going to go out to a vineyard and talk with the vendors to you know get that domain expertise and the experimental design of how the data is collected because we're gonna have to model that right like that kind of stuff is i think really where it's at as opposed to having that context of knowing that there's something to talk about i guess but maybe i'm just an intro too much of an introvert where i need that example i need that reason to talk to someone
0: yeah i understand Actually, I think von Neumann uh, couple is really interesting because if I remember correctly, they were completely outcasts. No? Uh, when they worked about the Bayesian stuff, am I right? Or
1: there's a few kind of groups at the time, right? So you have the Manhattan Project where they're developing Monte Carlo and Markov chain Monte Carlo during and then after World War II, and so they're kind of sequestered in Los Alamos, and you know they have these big science communities, and there's like nothing else to do. Like I, I I've been to Los Alamos and, and did some research there in his undergrad. It's nothing. It's like just people from the lab. The high school there is ridiculous because all of the kids are, you know, children of these super smart parents. So there you had von Neumann's, you had the Rosenbluth's, you had, you know, Metropolis. You had a ridiculous density of very smart people solving very hard problems. And then you also had Bletchley Park in the UK, right, where you have a bunch of mathematicians and you have uh, Turing kind of heuristically redeveloping a lot of Bayesian methodology. You've got working with them on that. You've got these kind of intense concentrated communities, I think it's interesting there is not just the density of intelligence, but the fact that they're all kind of working on the same problem. And so, you know, you kind of see the different aspects of it and you see this kind of machine to turn math into something useful, which might be fun. You can go see Bletchley Park in the UK. It's still kind of set up and you can go see some of the old uh, bombs and computing machines. And it's not a bad. It's all right. It's all right for a visit. The Next door is the uh, UK National Computing Museum, which is a lot more fun. So it's kind of a good one-day trip to go
0: hit both of those. Very good. I'll try to do that then next time in the the UK. (laughs) Okay, Michael, thank you very much. That was really awesome talking with you. And thank you for being so generous with your time. I think I remember you have a course coming up in New York or something like that at the beginning of 2020.
1: Uh, yeah, so we were talking about teaching earlier, and I do a lot of teaching. If anyone's interested in having me come out to their company, I do bespoke courses. And then I also have these open courses. And so in first week of February next year in New York, I'll be doing an open course, three days, eight hours a day, lots of material. It's a very intense experience, but there's also a lot of interactive exercises and material to kind of take with you as you go. And there's also a fourth day on advanced topics where we'll go into Gaussian processes and sparse regression and go through some of those challenging detective processes to figure out what happens when something goes wrong. So if anyone's listening is interested, you know, feel free to come on
0: by. That sounds awesome. <laughs> I put the link in the show notes. Uh, people can register uh, online and so on, I, I guess. Yeah,
1: uh, I have a course page uh, on my website and it has a link to the registration there and I can send you the
0: registration link directly. Yeah, thanks. I put that in the show notes. Okay, so uh, thank you very much again, Michael. I hope uh, listeners were inspired by your uh, principled and workflow. And not too scared. <laughs> yeah, not too scared. I guess we were also uh, optimistic, you know, but... Uh, I find that very inspiring, the idea of uh, it's okay to fail. Don't be shy uh, to fail.
1: It's hard for everyone. Like no one should come into this thinking that some people are just like, for them, statistics is easy. It's just super hard for everyone.
0: Yeah, exactly. If it's hard, it's okay. It's supposed to be hard, but it's also why it's so interesting. So go beat Legos, guys. <laughs> I also want to thank you. Uh, I'm sure everybody is grateful for the amazing work you and the, the whole Stan do. I think it really helps democratize these methods and as you said, uh, bridge the gap between statistical theory and practice. So again, I'll put uh, resources and a link to your website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. And I encourage everyone to go there because uh, there is a lot of resources on your website. So thank you again, Michael, for uh, taking the time and being on this show. Thanks, it was a lot of fun. This has been another episode of Learning Bayesian Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher and visit learnbeizestats.anvil.app for more resources based on today's topics as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true Bayesian state of mind. That's learn-bass-stats.anvil.app. Our theme music is Good Bayesian by Baba Brinkman, with MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Endora. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andora, like the country. Thanks so much for listening, you are truly a good Bayesian, change your predictions after taking information, in. and if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations, let me show you how to be a good Bayesian, change calculations after taking fresh data, in. those predictions that your brain is making, let's get them on a
1: solid foundation.